I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Today, Michelle and I had the distinct pleasure of sitting down with Todd Bumgardner. He's the owner of VSP Nova in Sterling, Virginia, a facility that offers semi-private personal training. Um, He is the owner and content creator at Strength Faction, which emphasizes professional development for movement professionals, strength coaches. And he is the creator of the new Human Predator Pack Mule podcast, which is also a programming service for backcountry hunting athletes. This was a really interesting chat, and we got into a wide variety of topics, uh, including his own hunting, backpacking, trekking practice, his own training habits when it comes to making himself the best human slash predator slash pack mule possible, as well as common mistakes that folks typically make in trying to engineer backcountry athletes. Michelle asked him about his decision to write a book and what that process was like. Uh, him and I talked about the time that he spent as a program coordinator for kids, kids and adults with developmental disabilities and the lessons that he took from that experience that continue to shape him as a fitness professional and as a business owner today. Uh, we talked about things that he's changed his mind on over the past five years with a big emphasis on the role of low-level aerobic training. I did not get to ask him about his favorite book, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, but that is probably going to be saved to round two. And uh, we also talked a little bit about the generalizability of training and the role of coaches in constructing humans first, as opposed to being lured into overly specific exercises that look like they would transfer, but actually don't offer any kind of window of adaptation. This was an incredibly wide-ranging discussion, Um, had a great time recording this, and sincerely cannot wait to get Todd back on for round two, and cannot wait for him to come out to Colorado so I can drag his butt up a 14,000-foot mountain. Hope you enjoy it. We will be back after this quick message. Are you ready to start lifting heavier, outlasting others, and moving like a gazelle? Oh, you better get ready for the Endure and Repeat 20-week training program coming April 5th, 2021. Not only will the program include large amounts of program writing educational content, such as an overview explaining progressions and training concepts, but the program will also help you start prioritizing your own fitness, training consistently with sustainable strategies while getting yoked, and using trackable metrics to watch yourself progress. And the program includes videos for every single exercise to avoid you scratching your head about what you're supposed to be doing like other training programs out there. If you're willing to put in the work, this will be the most rewarding training process you have ever embarked upon. Head over to michellebolin-training.com to learn more. And now back to the show. All right, Todd. So your book, Let the First Reps Suck was probably one of my favorite, if not my most favorite coaching book. And it's probably in my top three recommendations for uh, fellow coaches. And it's separate, I would say, from the other books I recommend, which are very much so like training methodology, methodology based. I usually, you know, recommend like Joel Jameson's, you know, cover all your bases with conditioning. And I know you love that book as well. 
And then I always try to have people go towards like Cal Dietz, uh, triphasic training. And I really, with that one, I really say, you know, try to extract the concepts that he's talking about and not necessarily the methodologies um, and try to make sure you can think about your own context when you're reading through that book. But your book is, is much different than those two because it's all about, you know, what we actually do on a daily basis and probably the most important things that we do, which is, you know, how we execute our coaching skills and develop those, you know, besides just the methodologies that we choose in training. And, you know, some of the biggest things from your book that I really got out of it and really had to sit back and think uh, through and how to really take what I do. And basically, I sat down with your book, you know, I go through my whole process of reading it, underlying, and then I have like pages and pages of notes in my notebook, just so I can extract things a lot easier. And your kind of breakdown of the reasons why people seek us out, and that's, you know, to feel and gain competency, to change self-perception for human connection, and then how you provide coaches ways on how to apply those things and address those things right away with, you know, cues and context, creating systems and a structure process. And you go through how you take, you know, someone new coming in and you put them through a process to get, you know, exact outcomes and exact goals, which is something that I think a lot of coaches really struggle with the most, you know, Mm -hmm. of course, exercise selection, it's always like this overwhelming thing, what exercise do I do, but it's like, maybe it's not as important as really making the goal clear and having a system and process to be able to get that. So, you know, I want to thank you for that, first of all, because it's just an incredible book. But I want to ask, you know, what was the motivation to write the book? And what was the process like? Well, thanks for all that. I mean, uh, I sincerely mean it when you throwing my name around with Joel Jameson and Kale Dietz. That's, that's, uh, that's an honor. So thank you very much. Uh, the motivation to write the book was a lot of the, for the reason I, that we have strength faction and that's because, um, you know, folks go to college or they go through some kind of certified certification course and there are just so many gaps to fill in. Whereas mm-hmm actually applying things in everyday life, for example, because if, if you go look at um, a, like something like um, triphasic training or something like that, you can be overwhelmed with what's going on there and thinking about how does this fit into what I do? And I wanted people to have something that says, well, this is what I do and here's how to create what I do and, and a practical way to do that. And I think by pres- providing the examples of what we do in strength faction and what we do at our gym every day, it gave people a realistic uh, guide to be able to say, okay, so I need to have understand people. I need to understand why people are coming. And then I just need a practical process to be able to do that. And I thought, you know, if, if I demonstrated that in a very simple way, that it would be much more impactful than um, just staying up in the clouds with theory or mm-hmm. some abstract stuff. It's just like, I just wanted to tell people what we do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you have a line in there, some like the best educators turn complex things into just simple communication strategies. And I think that's, you know, one of the problems these days, I think a a lot of young coaches are struggling with because, you know, social media is much more, 
you know, mainstream than it used to be when, you know, when I was a young coach even. Uh, so, you know, people are getting very overwhelmed with all these theoretical, you know, things that they see. And then you actually are like, no, it goes here. And, you know, you develop a program like this. And I think sh- I've heard so many stories from strength uh, faction people who your just program design strategies and that program itself has made a dramatic difference in the, in their coaching abilities. That's awesome. Um, well, that's, that's Chris's work. So just to be clear, <laughs> like all of the program design stuff is just Chris makes it really simple. Yeah, that's fair. And I've heard you talk before about, you know, stealing someone else's stuff because, yeah. you know, they've had the experience, they've kind of created this following that. And then over time with new knowledge and new experiences, adapt it as your own. Yeah. Just start there. There's somebody that's done it. And, and then you, you just apply it in your situation and you see what sticks for you and, and what doesn't, you know, I, I can remember the first uh, job that I had at a grad school it was actually where Chris and I met. Um, there was a girl that just, there was a new trainer as well. And she just perpetually came and tried to get other people to do her work for her. And, and I'm not trying to throw anybody in the bus or anything, but I just, and I won't say a name, but um, she just kept, and she would ask us and do this and how to do that. Well, can you do this for me? It's like, and I remember I just asked her one time, I was like, well, do you have a certification? And she was like, yeah. I was like, well, what did they teach you? And she said some things and I was like, well, just start there. Just do that thing. And then after that, you can start to branch out and, and ask more questions, but you just have to take and and use the stuff that you have first or and the stuff that we get to steal from, from the people that came before us. Mm. And one of the things at the end of the book that you talked about is, you know, you talked about creating a life for yourself as you do it. And this is very important. Uh, I think for young coaches of, you know, making sure you put the time in, in the beginning and, you know, put the work in, but then, you know, identify what you're passionate about, identify what you enjoy and then try to create a life around that. And I feel like you basically are the primary example of that. You've taken your passion and hobby and really turned it into a, a business opportunity in some ways. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how your interest in hunting and backpacking turned into you know, a training opportunity? Yeah. Well, quite honestly, when I, when I wanted to start going into Western hunting and, and traveling to hunt and all those things, uh, I decided I wanted to learn more about how you might program for something like that. So I went looking um, and I looked at different programs and I'm not going to name any of them, but I, I went in that kind of space and looked around and saw it was there. And I was like, well, there's folks that have done this and they've, and they've probably done it better than I can do right now. Um, so I went I, and I looked at them and I looked at these programs and <laughs> having a lens through which to look, I was like, this is crap. Like none of this is good. And it's, it's not actually going to prepare it for anybody for anything. And, mm-hmm. and, and not just to throw CrossFit under the bus because, you know, I think CrossFit has done a lot of good things for the fitness industry, but it doesn't actually prepare you for anything. So essentially what I found was CrossFit with guns and bows. And I was, <laughs> I was like, this, this isn't going to do it. So I was like, well, I guess I got to do this myself. And so I started uh, figuring out, thinking about, okay, so what are my needs? Um, what are going to be the specific demands of the places that I'm going? And I decided I'll just do it myself. And then I was like, well, if I need this, there are other folks like me that need this. And so mm-hmm. why not help other people? Man, that sounds terrifying and absolutely dangerous. <laughs> it wasn't good. Well, and it's just, I just, it was just so funny. Cause like, I, I was like, I had so much faith because a lot of, 
you know, it's just like anybody else, you know, a lot of the branding's really good. And, you know, you know that these folks go and, and hunt on mountains and they do these things. So it's like, well, they got to know something. But I think it really comes down to um, the in spite of type of situation, whereas like they're able to go do these things in spite of the training that they do. Um, it could just be because it's something that they've done their entire lives. So it's like, you know, it's um, for example, you know, there was a strength coach back in the day at Penn State that, um, you know, when, when folks like LeVar Arrington and all this stuff were there and, and his training methodology wasn't great. And um, I actually have quite a few friends that got hurt. Um, but it's like you can't use LeVar Arrington as your litmus test because he's LeVar Arrington and LeVar Arrington could do whatever he wanted because he's LeVar Arrington. So it doesn't matter what training you gave him. Um, he was going to be LeVar Arrington. And I think that there's kind of somewhat of that case uh, in the hunting fitness space, uh, with way some of the, the programming is prescribed and things like that. Um, so I think that that is part of it, but it's just, I just, when I saw like, it almost was like wads just listed on paper and like, this is our off season stuff. And I was like, man, that sucks. Like this can be done so much better, you know? So Do you feel like it's like the grind mindset. It kind is. Of a thing? It yeah. is. You know what, it, you know what I like it too? It's, they're just like, they're just a little behind us. In, in, in the development and the maturity of, of the, the things that we have access to now. Um, there's, there's no Michelle Boland in, oh, yeah, in that space totally. yet. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's no, there's no Mike Boyle. There's no, uh, there's none of these, these people for them to identify and, and understand that like, well, this is actually the way to do it. I guess I'm just trying to be that guy because I, I think that there can be, there's so much room for them to grow because it's just a little bit of an immature thought process because they draw a lot from, um, the, the tactical space and, you know, of the, you gotta be tough. You gotta do all this. And a lot of that's just wrong. And, and cause I work with a tactical population. We, uh, Chris and I work with a full-time tactical federal law enforcement unit, which is really a lot to say, but, um, and in being in that world, it's like the last thing that these people need is a bunch of lactic stress, which is what these programs create. And so, they do draw from that. It's like the, you got to be tough. Like, well, you're going to be tough on the mountain. And, and what mm. they don't really realize is that they're just training their brain to be tired and perform poorly when they're tired. So it's that overcoming sense. that, you know, do you see a lot of, I think you put something up recently about mimicking what you do or mimicking the, uh, you know, the movements that you do in terms of like, you know, loading up for a bow or things like mm -hmm. that. Um, do you see a lot of that stuff in that realm? That's why I made the post because yeah, I yeah, saw yeah. I saw these really popular outlets um, demonstrating things like that, and I was just like, man, that's such a bad idea. That's such a bad idea. You're gonna all you can do is make people worse at shooting a bow and make them hurt their shoulders. So that's why I did it. Yeah. Todd, I just want to warn you, you're going to receive a text message from me when we're done here and I'm going to come down and you're going to teach me some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. You're I'd love gonna, to. You're going to have a little guest. I would love that. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> all right. Viva, it's interesting. We've uh, well, well, first of all, I'm I'm recording this from a formerly CrossFit gym. So I think with all the shit talking on CrossFit, <laughs> my blood is, has started to boil a little bit. So if I just evaporate away, <laughs> you know why. Secondly, uh, you evoke the name of Penn State, which is my undergrad alma mater. So I'm ready in love too. Maybe I'll come down with Michelle. We could do some both stuff it. together. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> wow. I think our badassness would just go up 10 notches. I'd love to have yeah. you guys. Absolutely. To, to dangerous degrees. Um, so Todd, I want to, I want to ask you about human predator pack mule. Yep. I kind of just want to leave it at that. What's, what's that title mean to you and what is it? 
Well, the impetus is was a conversation that I had with my my good friend Steve, who I go to Alaska every year to hunt with, um, and we were talking about kind of what it is and what it takes to to be to be prepared, and and at the first level is the human level, and I mean that from um, a mentality standpoint, from a psychological standpoint, but I also mean it from just the human body standpoint. From um, at the base level, what does the human body need before we start to think about it as a hunter. So we need the requisite joint mobility, range of motion, whatever you want to call it, use that word. That's such a convoluted word. We need the requisite uh, energy development from aerobic standpoint. We need the requisite strength. So we have to treat ourselves as a human first and just train the human body. Then from there, we have to think about ourselves as a predator, as a human predator, because that's what we turn into when we enter that environment. And a lot of the things that people do, do to prep for hunting right now is just all this super fast stuff that makes you super tired, but they don't think about the fact that when you're hunting and you have to stock something, you need to move incredibly slow and it is exhausting to move slowly and no one ever prepares the body to move that way. So it was something that I really wanted to make a part of it. So if we can behave as if we can train ourselves fundamentally as humans and then make ourselves move as a predator might move, will be more successful. And then from there, it's the pack mule part, which is the part that everybody overtrains for, which is the the hike in, the hike out. So, you know, if you if you kill um, a deer a few miles in or an elk or something like that, you got to pack all that meat out on your back. And so that's the thing that, that is like the most anxiety provoking thing for people. So that's the thing that they just over focus on. But it, it's part of it. But that also embodies some of the mindset of like, you know, wow, I don't think that you should be grinding all the time in your training. I think that's a bad idea. There are times when you need to, and there are times when you're going to have to do that in, in a hunting scenario or, or a backcountry scenario. And it embodies both the physicality and the mindset of that. Very cool. And I mean, specifically, what is it? Is it um, like, how do you interact with those ideas, those articles, podcasts, programs that you write? Mm-hmm. Yep. So I, I train hunters um, and I write, I write right now, mostly for the Journal of Mountain Hunting. And then we have, I have a podcast called the Human Predator Pack Mule Podcast, which I try to layer it. Like my last guest was Dr. Mike Roussel. And we talked about supplementation because there's a lot of like not good supplementation and he knows what he's doing. So I wanted to, I'm trying to bring all of these, these influences from our world and just like suck them into the hunting fitness world. So people have a better litmus test of what might be worthwhile for them. That's, that's awesome. And uh, so our, our podcast is called more train, less pain, but the full semicolon title is engineering the adaptable athlete. Cool. And it's interesting just hearing the commonalities of people that we've chatted with so far. So we talked to Jared Boyd and Eric Schmidt of the Memphis Grizzlies yeah. and they train basketball players, right? Like completely different, like athlete sort of population. But it just made me think about something that you and Michelle had discussed. Whereas like when you're talking about, you know, having to draw back on a bow, it's like the things that you're doing in the weight room aren't going to look like that. They're going to look like more generalizable qualities because you're developing that human first. And that's kind of what Eric and, and Jared said, which to me was, you know, surprising. Like you think about developing NBA athletes and you think about increasing, you know, vertical jumps and like squatting and putting muscle on these people. And like, now nah, we kind of got to keep them healthy and available first. Like that's, that's our job first and foremost. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, they already picked the right parents. That's they're, <laughs> yeah. they're 99% of the way there. And it's just, it's just keeping them on the court. And, and I, I, I guess the easiest way to say it is I took that thought process from 
you know, smart strength and conditioning coaches. And I just applied it to the hunting world because that's really all it is. It's mm. just, you know, you need to have an, a, a, a good aerobic system and you need to be generally strong enough and generally athletic enough to go in there and handle the demands of what might happen. Isn't that something that a lot of coaches struggle with is being able to you know, extract these generalized concepts and apply them in different contexts, right? Oh, yeah. I feel like we're so, you know, I ran into this a lot when I was a strength conditioning coach at a division one Institute. And of course, like coaches kind of thought this way, but you know, I see a lot in the strength conditioning world of like coaches came out to me and like, wait, you didn't play hockey. And I was like, no, I don't even know how to skate. And they're like, well, then you can't train the hockey players. You know, it's like you only can kind of be specific towards what you've been exposed to. And what's kind of been your experience experience and how have you developed kind of a way to extract these overarching concepts and just apply them in different realms? Well, I, I think it comes back to uh, foundational knowledge. So my mentor is Bill Hartman and um, I'm going to, I'm going to butcher this, but he, he has a quote where it says something like, um, you know, without the foundational knowledge, you have to believe the things that you're told because you have nothing to, um, mm. to weigh them against. So it comes back to, you know, having the experience and the education to say, well, this is actually how the human body works from what we understand right now. And I think a lot of people don't have that. And so they look at something that looks like, well, you know, I, I don't know if people do this, but I'm just trying to use an example of like, there's a, a weighted puck and this weighted puck's going to make right. me a better shot because it just adds more stress into, well, adds, I'll be stronger with my shot. So it's going to make me a better hockey player. Mm. Um, and so it looks like those very simple things are going to work for people because they just don't have the knowledge outside of that, of training of the human body, of, of uh, the things that we know to be able to say, well, we don't really need to do that. We just need to make them generally fit, think about what the demands of the sport might be to, so that they can go out and play. And that's where the specific things are going to come from. It's funny. I think about a, a, an old PowerPoint I saw of Dan Johns from like seven or eight years ago. And it was, it was about this notion of sports specificity with strength training. And it was like football strength training. And it was a guy in football pads with a barbell on his back. Hmm. And it's like hockey strength training. It was like just hockey pads, barbell on his back, you know, like the same thing. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's just interesting. Like people, people want specificity so badly because I think like you said, Todd, it, it looks like it should work. Yeah. It, it has all the window dressings and kind of all the like, oh yeah, like how would that not make me a better, like you said, like weighted puck hockey player, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and, and people just don't know any better and that's the issue. But if you even think about it and I'm, and I'm sure that uh, Michelle, you can speak to this. Like when I trained a lot of football players during the summer, my, my strength and conditioning work was to, to make them survive camp. Like that's why we did the things that we did because camp's going to be rough. You got two weeks of just a beat down. You're mm -hmm. going to be running a ton and, you know, let's make sure that you don't pull the crap out of your hips while you're running. Let's make sure you're prepared to deal with all of that volume. And I think that that's where, you know, people just miss is they don't think about, okay, well, they don't know enough to say a football player needs an aerobic system. You know what I mean? They don't yeah. know enough to be able to do that. And I think it's just, there's just a lack of foundational knowledge. And that's why you see things um, perpetuate the way that they do. Yeah, definitely. When I was taught, you know, program design back in the day, it was always 
you know, the lowest volume and the highest intensity kind of at the end. So you kind of just get that grained in your head. But then when you talk about preseason, we're talking about like the highest volume possible that they're going to experience. And it's like, that's what you have to like lead them to. Um, But yeah, absolutely. So Todd, this is usually the question we kick things off with, but we're just absolutely messing with the normal order of things right now. Um, Currently you are training for like hunting expedition, right? That's a correct Mm -hmm. statement. Yep. You train today yet? I did not train today yet. I will train this afternoon. What will that workout be specifically? So it's, uh, it will be 60 minutes of lateral sled drags with a weight vest on. Wow. It's one of those things where you just, you just, uh, it's not super physically demanding. Uh, it's just like, it's a, it's drudgery. So it's just, it's preparing your brain for the drudgery that makes it the, makes it tough. Now you just, do you just get comfortable with silence and do it in silence or do you pop on like a podcast or music or something like that? I, it depends on the day. Uh, I like to mess with myself. I do, um, when I'm training. So it's like just to, to put myself in some kind of, I guess not, I'm, I guess increase the level of, of unpredictability in some, it's sometimes, but you know, for example, I, I, a few last phase I had, um, jump roping in my program. So I would put on Coltrane because you would have all kinds of weird timing changes and stuff. So the, his rhythm would mess with my rhythm when I was jump roping. A lot of times I put it on in silence. I I'll go like, if I do high intensity continuous training, I'll do it in absolute silence just because it's like just getting into the space where it's like, you're uncomfortable, but you're fine. And there's no distraction away from your, your discomfort. So I I was going to ask like what exactly messing your messing with yourself looked like, like if it was just, you know, taking like a random pill that you found on the ground or like like eating like a double meat Chipotle burrito right before the training session, like that could, that could take on. It could be brutal. (laughs) Yeah. It's usually just messing with the environment in some way, just so it's like, you know, cause there's uh you know, I, I don't know if you guys have ever read uh, Building the Elite by Craig Weller and Jonathan Pope. So it's their, it's their book about um, prepping operators for special operations selection. And it's a really, really good book. It's, it's, it's the best training book I've seen come out in the past few years. Um, but they talk about doing different things like with open-ended workouts or doing some kind of eustress training. So you deal with things that might be anxiety provoking. And I try to do that to myself and just have as many different mental inputs as possible because, you know, when you're laying on the tundra in Northern Alaska and you have to make a decision about your shot placement or, you know, things aren't going to be perfect. So being able to deal with as many factors as possible and, and trying to mess with yourself in as, as many different environments as possible, even though you need specificity uh, to really make it sync. But, you know, I think the general practice of that is good for, I think for most people, quite honestly. Uh, not to John? bring it back to, oh, sorry, not to bring it back to CrossFit, but um, <laughs> uh, the coach like Ben Bergeron is a local coach around here for CrossFit New England. Uh <sighs> Um, <laughs> he was talking oh, no. about, <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I, I just, I don't think a wad's going to do anything for anybody. No, no, no. I don't, and the, and the folks that compete don't actually do CrossFit. They don't well, do the wads. So. This is my analogy for it. It's like, we're talking about the NFL versus like a flag football league. Right. right. So like, I love the NFL when it comes to CrossFit. I love like watching the CrossFit games, seeing the highest level. Oh, it's super but, cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that's different from like, you know, gen pop doing what it's like that's flag football league kind right. of a thing 
Yeah. I, I don't think that continue. most people understand that yes. the people in the CrossFit games aren't doing the wads either. Yeah, they exactly. have a very layered approach to their fitness. So Yeah, but he was he was talking about like uh, you know, in the games, they change the rules on them all the time. And a lot of people you can see these like um psychological and mental like breakdowns when that happens. And you know, he he trains um a girl named Katrin and you know, in the middle of training, he'll change the rules on her, add reps or take away reps, and he just wants to see how she responds because you know, that is a factor in the competition. That's a great idea. Yeah, there's there's one that I really like where it's just uh, it's like a coin game where you increase the level of threat that uh, an exercise might pose to you. So you start with one where you feel really comfortable with and you literally just grab a handful of coins and just for how many coins you have, you don't know how many coins are in your hand. That's just how many sets you do. And then you increase the level of, of exercise complexity or or exercise threat perceived by you and then you know mess with yourself that way i love that you mentioned engineering the elite so uh john pope is a is a friend of mine i used to work with him out at oh cool both in in denver so he's i mean yeah him and his partner are both brilliant at what they do oh man yeah that book is that book is immense i i love that i'm actually rereading it right now yeah there you go Absolutely. I wanted to ask a, a selfish question. So you and I kind of athletically are, our interests are somewhat aligned. Like I'm a big backcountry skier and oh, cool. um, like mountain expeditions and that kind of thing. So you, you mentioned a potential answer to this question already via like, or, you know, with the glycolytic training that CrossFit seems to promote, but like, what's the, what's the number one thing that you see trainers or athletes do incorrectly or go about in the wrong way when trying to develop a backcountry athlete? they don't do enough low heart rate work. Yeah. It's just like, it's just like, uh, you know, road work for mixed martial artists and boxers. Everybody wants to come in and do these really exciting high paced, high heart rate circuits or whatever it might be. And they don't do enough cardiac output work. I think that if, if I was going to make, if I was going to, if you, if you had to take me down to two choices, but obviously we have more than two choices, but if you're taking me two choices, uh, I would make people strong and I would do cardiac output work for backcountry hunters. That's what I would do. So I think that that's the biggest thing that people miss on is, is low heart rate work. A low is low. Put, <laughs> I have my folks. Go, I know I have folks uh, typically stay like 110 to 140, somewhere in there. Um, because, and I, and I put those on it because if I say, you know, they say it could be up to 150. I've heard Mark McLaughlin say it needs to be direct, super low. I've heard other folks say that cardiac output work will work up to 150, depending on the person. Um, and I've heard some folks say that you just need to be able to say a full sentence and that's kind of your litmus test. But I, I kind of give it that 110 to 140 uh, and put bookends on the lower end and not quite up to 150 because I know that during the session, my clients are going to go above one. They're going to hit 150 because they just didn't go slow enough. So if I can set that lower low barrier to kind of keep their average heart rate where I want to, that's why I do it that way. And would you base that off of their resting heart rate at all? Or is that not something? I mean, if you want to get really specific, you could. Uh, I mean, but I don't know that it matters quite that much. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you have to do that. I just know if I look at a high resting heart rate, I just know that there's going to be more of the cardiac output work to bring their, to lower the floor rather than try to raise their ceiling. So gotcha. And then, okay, so you mentioned kind of low output cardiac training and then just getting them strong. What would strong mean in the context of a backcountry athlete? And, you know, how strong is strong enough? It's like me and Michelle's favorite question ever. Yeah, you don't, I, you don't have to be super duper strong. I, I think you just have to, I think you, 
I don't have, I, it's funny. I got asked this question the other day. It's like, do you have a standard for what a backcountry hunter should be able to do strength wise? I don't. Um, I think if you look at the general human strength standards, if you look like you can deadlift one and a half times your body weight or two times your body weight, you're probably strong enough. Um, okay. I think the biggest thing is, are you strong enough to adapt to stress? Do you have the general ability to, um, handle the positions that you're going to need to be in. And I think that that just comes from the basic strength standards of, can you deadlift this much? Can you dead, can you bench press close to one times your body weight? Can you do those things? And I think if you can do stuff like that, you're definitely strong enough. The, the thing that I mostly look at when it comes to, um, my backcountry hunters is there's no degradation in strength as we train. They're likely going to get stronger because a lot of them are just coming from, you know, no programming or just not good programming. Um, so they're likely going to get stronger, but the main thing I'm going to look at is like, as I'm increasing the the level of aerobic training that we're doing, or if we have to add in, you know, I only add in glycolytic training towards the end and depending on where they're going to be, because those adaptations don't last long anyway, um, that they just don't lose any strength. That's my biggest thing. Yeah. And you know, you mentioned, you know, these standards, some people aren't a big fan. Some people are, I know you've talked about them frequently in your general population clients as it, it gives them kind of like a mountain to climb something to right. accomplish. But in my mind, it also relates to training age. Like we want to get to a certain point where like frequency, consistency, and adherence are the standard. And I think these strength standards is basically saying, yeah, you've trained enough to, now be able to handle all these various things. And I, I think right. that's what the strength standard kind of gives you. Yeah. But I think it's, I think that's a great way to put it. It's, it's driving the consistency that, that really just facilitates the adaptations that we want. So I, I loved kind of saying on this topic, I loved your recent Instagram post regarding how, at least I think this was an Instagram post, you accomplished your powerlifting goals and then mm -hmm. you just decided that you were fucking done with it. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, I'm in the midst of something similar with competitive running. I think I'm probably on, on that end of things now. Talk about what that decision was like for you to make, if that was easy or difficult and kind of like the, the relative merits of continuing to get stronger versus injury, burnout, like all those sure. sorts of things. We'll be back to the show after this quick message. Whether you're a trainer, coach, or therapist, our jobs are hard. And oftentimes, the last thing we want to do after a long day or week is sit down and write ourselves a quality fitness program. During my first few years out from physical therapy school, I found myself falling into this trap and repeating the same ineffective workouts that yielded the same familiar aches and pains along with the same old strength numbers or running paces. Towards the end, I found that it started to sap some of the enthusiasm I was bringing to the table when working with clients, and I couldn't have that. One of the best personal and professional decisions I've made in recent memory was hiring a coach to design my own strength and conditioning programs. Removing the pressure of constructing my own workouts was massive and enabled me to experience different facets of training while continuing to progress towards my unique fitness and performance goals. That's why I'm so passionate about my remote personal training service. Every four weeks, you get a new program fully customized around your time demands, injury history, performance goals, and equipment availability. Each exercise in the PDF is linked to a YouTube video of yours truly, so you always know what you're supposed to be doing. 
We'll chat on Zoom for 30 minutes during the first and last weeks of the program, and I'm available seven days a week for questions or video feedback via email. Take a major step towards your mental and physical health today. Let me program for you so that you can rediscover why you love training in the first place. Find out more by going to timrichart.com slash services. And now back to the show. It wasn't, uh, so I had to get to the point where I was in powerlifting. It had been, I mean, I wasn't old when I stopped. I was 26, um, but it had been a years long journey to get to the place that I was. And I had made a bunch of sacrifices to be there. And I, I just, I was at the point where I'd like, well, man, I, I, I hit this big milestone. I, that was, I hit the thing that was most important to me. And beyond that, I didn't have, I, I didn't have another proverbial mountain to climb. So that was part of it. And the other thing was like, shit was just starting to hurt. And I was like, <laughs> I, I actually started to get the perspective of, you know, I know a lot of people are like, man, you know, uh, train hard, you know, you don't even know how long you're going to live, like get out of yourself what you can. But I was like, that's stupid because chances are you are going to live to be like 80. So to sit there and say, I'm going to destroy my body in my twenties and my thirties doesn't make a damn bit of sense to me. So I looked at that and then I thought about, so what do I really need to do to be able to perform at the next level? So when I deadlifted 615, I weighed 203 pounds. And, you know, for me to get to the next thing would be 650 or 700. I was either going to have to put on a ton, ton of weight and be unhealthy, or I was going to have to take steroids. And I didn't want to do either of those things. And so when I sat back and I looked at this, I felt a sense of accomplishment. I had, I had set out and done the things that I wanted to do. I squatted in the fives. I bench pressed in the fours. And I deadlifted in the sixes. Mm. For a guy without the frame to do something like that, that was pretty good for me. So I felt the sense of accomplishment. And then I looked at like what was important to me and the time that it took to train to be able to do the things that I did. And it just didn't fit in my life anymore. So the decision wasn't that hard. And I also looked at like, man, like I missed out on so many things. And I was, you know, I had, I think I mentioned this in that post, but I had a girlfriend at the time and she loved to hike and she loved to go and do things. And I would be such an asshole about like how long we would go out and do things and, and how long we would hike. Cause I was like, I didn't want to mess up my training. And it was just, it was so narrow minded and stupid. And it's just like, so when I put all of those things together, I was like, I don't, there's no point. I don't need to do this anymore because it's, it'd be different if it was like, you know, I was playing in the NFL and it's like, man, if I can tough this out for one more year and I get to my fifth year, I got a pension. I can, I can justify this. I'm picking okay. stuff up because I like to pick stuff up. So it's like, what's the point, you know? So that's where I got to. And, and then weighing how strong you need to be. It's like, you know, from an ego standpoint, and this is something that I talked with, you know, when I first started, uh, getting ready to go do Western hunting and stuff like that. I talked with Bill and he's like, well, I'd like you to be around, you know, I think we, we got to get you down to like 190 pounds to really perform the way that you want to. And I was like, that sounds nice, Bill. I'm not ready to do that. Uh, I like being, I like being a little bit bigger and I'm sure at some point my ego will let me let that go. And then, you know, a few times a year, I make sure that I can still deadlift 500 pounds just because I like being that strong. Um, so I weigh that out. It's like, well, what can I do to just, maintain that level of strength because that for me at this point in my life being able to do that doesn't require a great amount of effort so it's looking at you know if i do these things is it going to be potentially injurious what is it going to take away from me is it going to limit me from doing the things that i really really enjoy and from a time standpoint and from a um you know a, a, a risk to benefit ratio standpoint 
where do all of these things fit? So that's when I sit down and look at like really heavy lifting and stuff anymore. It just doesn't fit. It's just, it's, it doesn't fit anymore. I'll be 35 in a couple of months. And, you know, I just, there's so many other things to life than, than being a big, strong dude. And I, I want to make sure I can experience those. What do you do with a client or an individual that seems overly preoccupied with objective metrics like, you know, pounds deadlifted, miles run, like, and, you know, anything that is pure numbers. Cause I think we all deal with people, probably ourselves included to some extent that just want to chase those things either because there's some inherent self-value in them because it's ego, because they don't have anything else to do. Sure. I've let them try it because there's nothing better than learning that for yourself. And, and who am I to interject my values into what this person might be doing that? So one of the things that I hate um, is, you know, the messaging that comes from the fitness system and the fitness system, fitness industry. And this is going to come from an opposite direction where, uh, for example, people might tell people, well, well, fat loss is a silly goal or doing this is stupid or worrying about what you look like is dumb. It's like, who are you to tell someone that? Who are you to tell them that this is just some societal norm that's being interjected? So it's like, you got to let people live out their, 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 their things, man. And if it's like, Hey, if you want to chase a 500 pound deadlift and I think we can do it safely, I'll hope you try to get there and we'll see what we learn along the process. And we'll find out how important it actually is to you. And then we can make a decision from there, but you got to let people who are, who is anybody to say that this isn't, this isn't a good goal for somebody unless, you know, I'm trying to think of the markers unless you see it promoting extremely unhealthy behavior. And then, then it's worth having a conversation about like, Hey, you know, I don't know about this, but unless it's not promoting that, it's like, you got to let people do the thing that they want to try to do. It makes me think of, I did um, some hospital and some home health rehab work as a physical therapist for a time. It's my dog growling at another dog. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, but there's this, you know, in, in, within the hospital kind of system, there's this, this big push of fall prevention for elderly folks. So it's like n- never let anybody fall ever. And then they get discharged with these incredibly restrictive assistive devices where, you know, now they can't even move around their home with this, with this walker. Um, and you, you know, these would be people that are of sound mind and their goals would be to start to move around without the walker to progress down to a cane or down to nothing. But, you know, their doctors and everyone that they would interact with just told them like, no, 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 no. I like, we don't care what you want. We just care that you don't fall. Mm. And it, to me, there's a, there's a big parallel there that goes, you know, like you, you, like you have to let people push towards the thing that they want to a certain point anyhow, before you interject and decide that you know better. Absolutely. Well, and you know, I went through a similar experience with my mother, my mom, six years ago, she had a stroke and she was in a rehab facility for a while. And then she lived with my brother for a while. And I was like the black sheep with this, where a lot of people were like, well, she needs to, she needs to just stay with somebody all the time. She was like, why don't we let her try to live on her own? Why don't we let her do like, if we sit here and put all these limits on her, how do we ever know? And first of all, it's like, She's not, she is of sound mind. Does she have limitations? Of course. But it's like, we have to let her try. Otherwise, we limit her life. It's her life. Like, we're here to facilitate her doing things well. And if we have to talk to her about making different decisions down the road, that's fine. But it's like, man, it it just, you can't be scared to let people live, man. And it's like, who are we to take somebody's independence from them if they are capable of getting that independence back? 
This is my most hated podcast host response of all time, but I, I love that. I really do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Uh, going back to, you know, having power lifter, lifting, it basically essentially became your life. Um, and I think that is definitely an, an extreme because it was a sport. You were training something that you were either competing in or, you know, fit in, you know, a community with. And I think a lot of general population clients, it's, you know, we don't want to limit their goals, but we could also make them understand that there's maybe a different way to train than their perceived expectations of what they're coming in for. And, you know, are we going to heavy load people? And then, you know, I've heard a lot of things about people training like power lifters and then like going off to work and working 10 hours and just feeling crushed all day. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah, but th yeah. that's kind of like what you were talking about is make sure like they experience that and then be like, Hey, like, I think if we just made a few changes, maybe you can have more energy throughout the day and still reach your goals at the same time. Um, but I really do love the whole concept of, you know, finding ways to train that fit your life and don't negatively affect it. Yeah, and it's 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 understanding, and I you know, I think it comes down to this is a cliche now, but understanding why you're doing what you're doing, you know, mm -hmm. um, and and for most folks, even but when they come into our gym, for example, you know, our general population clients, um, they we teach them a very specific process that they're going to move through. Like, this is what we're going to do. And this is how it's going to benefit you. And when you present it that way and you present it confidently, um, people are like, okay, good. Because people want certainty. They want to know that they're going to be doing the things that would most likely be best for them. And, you know, we, we swipe this from, uh, I don't know, you know, strength matters. Mm -hmm. Well, they train, they just do like, uh, they train the everyday athlete now. But one of the things that they do from a graduated standpoint from before you get into like nutrition coaching is like, are you walking 7,000 steps a day? Are you getting seven hours of sleep? Are you drinking seven glasses of water? It's like, so we were like, you know what? Let's just steal that. And we use that with our folks because you come to the gym to train and everybody wants to jump in with all of this complicated nutrition stuff before we get there. It's like, well, are you showing up here two or three days a week? Are you doing these three other things? Let's do that. Then we'll have conversations about the other stuff. You know what I mean? I literally have had the exact same conversation with yeah. my 22 year old nephew of like, you know, he follows all these power lifters and bodybuilders online and he like pounds his pre-workout and then like Jesus. complains that his shoulder's killing him. And he's like, he's like this ripped, like six, one kid, but I wrote his program, like a new program. And basically I'm showing him like a different way to exercise kind of a thing, but you know, just it's very hard for people to see like these long-term potential consequences. And sometimes I'm like, I see the people who he's following. And I'm like, yeah, he's on steroids. Like that. <laughs> Super lots of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I was like, yeah. let's not go down this path. Like let's move a little bit better. Let's have some fun. Um, let's get rid of that, that shoulder that's bothering you. Um, so, yeah. yeah. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't understand as, you're saying that there's a different way to recover aside from the Normatech oscillating leg pressure leg sleeves. <laughs> That's not all there is to recovery. Yeah. Go to bed. How about that? Go to sleep. <laughs> yeah. That's wild, man. You're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> yeah. At, when I was in the collegiate realm, like we would have these kids like super hungover, like four hours of sleep, come in and like use the Normatech. It's like, cool. Like, this is what's going to awesome. do. Awesome. Good yeah. job. 
You're yeah. killing it. It's, it's tough though. Cause it seems like it's just, but it's, it's the mentality that, that is bred into and to people, I shouldn't say bread, but like uh, that their influence is like, well, I just have to do that one thing. That's going to take care of all the other things. It couldn't be so as simple as like actually going to bed before midnight. It has to be like, there has to be a thing I can do that does the thing that I want, you know? Yeah. So it, it makes me think of the, uh, like all the anti hangover pills that are on the oh, market yeah. now. Like it's, it's just called maybe cutting yourself at yourself off say. like three drinks. Like that's like, that's the anti hangover pill. Yeah. Like it's easy don't, as that, you know, don't drink like an asshole and you don't end up hungover. <laughs> How about that? So Todd, you mentioned this a couple of times now and I'm sure. just kind of curious. So you, you, um, you know, you made the decision to get into what you describe as Western hunting. Mm-hmm. I mean, kind of from like, um, just from a, from a personal standpoint, what drove that decision? What were some of the inspirations? Well, uh, I, I hunt for several different reasons. I mean, I hunt because that's how I like to get my food. Um, and if we take it just back to the most foundational level, that's how I like to get my protein. Um, because I, and this is going to sound super hippy dippy, man, but I don't, I don't love factory farming. I don't love that, that it happens. I don't. And it's like, I get it from a, from the standpoint of, we got a lot of mouths to feed and to feed all those mouths, some shit has to happen. I get that. Um, but from my standpoint, if I can bow out of that a little bit, I do that, you know, and I grew up hunting. I stopped hunting for a while. Um, so if I have the skills and the ability to not have to participate that as much, then I'm going to do that. Uh, as far as Western hunting and just looked awesome, looked fun. Um, there's, you know, being able to go to the West, which is incredible. Um, and then challenge yourself to to both physically and mentally to learn the things that you need to learn to be able to go and do it successfully. And then also physically just like, man, even if you go to the high prairie, so I go to Wyoming usually once a year to hunt and uh, you're at like 8,000 feet. I live at like 400, which I'm walking on flat ground when I'm out on the prairie for the most part, but it's like that altitude still whoops you a little bit, man. So it's like all of the different challenges that are associated with it and just the experience. It's just, you get to go to beautiful places. Um, you get to hunt some of the toughest animals on the world in the world. And, um, you know, I get to do a lot of this stuff with my friends. So it's just the aspect of community of challenge of, of learning of, of, of development. And it's one of those things where it's like, you can't rest on your laurels and be able to do this. And, you know, I, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago and they asked me, why do you like going to Alaska to hunt so much? I was like, because you can't bullshit Alaska. You can either do it or you can't. And I like knowing that I can go out, you know, into these environments and I can take care of myself. Well, listen, man, uh, next time, cause you're in Virginia, right? Yep. So next time you're on your way to either Wyoming or Alaska, make a pit stop in Colorado. We'll get you up a 14,000 foot mountain. I'd love to do that. I'd yeah. love, you might have to carry me on your back, but we'll get up it. <laughs> L- luckily, I've been reading a lot about this pack mule training that there some guys go. been doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, that would be awesome. I, I would love to go climb a mountain with you, man. That would be awesome. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, the only other thing that I was sort of interested in asking you about on another podcast, you mentioned that you spent a certain amount of time as a program coordinator for kids with developmental disabilities. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, in, in the fields of strength and conditioning and physical therapy, to some degree, that's a relatively unique experience. Um, do you find that experience shaping you as a fitness professional, as a business owner, as a human being today? Yeah, well, to be, I mean, I, to be clear, it's mostly with adults. Um, and okay, yes, I, I would say that it does because... <sighs> If you, if you take things to 
a very base level. Um, the fact that you can see inherent value in a human being that doesn't have the ability to contribute in the way that other human beings do and still say that this is a valuable person and that this life is worthwhile. I, I think that that is, um, if you can do that foundationally, it's going to shape you as a human being. And, um, I think that that's really, really important. Um, because otherwise, you know, if you can't see that, I, I don't think people necessarily follow this logic, but that was like the logic of the Holocaust is like, this is not a, this is not a valuable human being. So for you to be able to sit down and say that no matter what, like whether this person has a certain level of intellectual disability or can't contribute that somebody else can, um, I think that that's a very important thing to do. And it definitely shaped me that way. Um, also from a, a standpoint of just patience. I remember I, so I used to the first, when I was still in college, I worked at a day program uh, for people with intellectual disabilities. And there was this kid who was just a pretty wicked behavioral problem. And he wasn't even supposed to be there, but there was just nowhere else that would serve him because he was violent. And uh, so it was my job to keep him from hurting people. And so, you know, everybody would just escalate him. It would just like, he would start to behave in a certain way and then people would respond and that would just heighten his reaction and, and it would escalate him up to the point where he was trying to hurt people. And so he had this obsession with the Lion King and he would love, I've watched that summer. I probably watched Lion King 475 times, but uh, <laughs> we were sitting there watching it and I saw him out of the corner of the eye. He just looked at me and then all of a sudden he just goes and just smacks me in the chest and I sat there, I looked at, I was like, that probably wasn't the right thing to do, was it? And he just smiled and, la and just went back to watching The Lion King, where he was used to the, the, used to the, the interaction of someone being like, don't do that, or grabbing him or trying to restrain him or something like that. And so just really learning, you know, what's a good time to really impose your will if you really need to, to, to protect somebody. And when's a good time to just pay attention and, and, and just deescalate things by being calm. And I definitely learned that kind of stuff from that. But I, I think it's really mostly just the humanistic ability to see foundationally that there's, I mean, and I'm not saying that I couldn't quite see that before this, but, but just really it, it's sinking in deeply that every human being has, has foundational value. Yeah. I, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And I've had similar experiences working with day grams and mass too. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is, is I hope that that punch was during your bench pressing 500 pounds days. <laughs> he had some, some pec padding. Oh, but he just, he actually hit me right in like the, right in the solar plexus. And I was like, I got to play this off. Like it didn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> so, but no, it was, I mean, there's a lot of really good from it, man. And just to see the people, uh, the people that, there and just to, to, to create the friendships that I did with folks and, um, you know, and, and also see the people, the, the direct staff, the direct care workers that, that work with folks with intellectual disabilities day in and day out. They're just, it's just the hardest, most thankful job, thankless job on the planet. So it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that people are taking the time to be patient and, and help other folks that, that have a hard time helping themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think the other thing that comes from doing work like that, especially just with what I've observed with kind of younger clinicians or folks is just like this notion that the people in those programs, you know, that they, they could be having a really nice time just looking out the window or watching something mm -hmm. simple on TV. And when you're sort of a fully functioning 
human, like you're, you're carrying your own baggage about what you need to be doing with your time and what you need to be doing to occupy their time. And I know for me, it was just such a massive paradigm shift of realizing that, no, like this person's absolutely content doing what they're doing at this moment in time. Yeah. And none of, none of my bullshit, none of my expectations actually matters whatsoever. No. And it's just, you just, just being there. And, you know, I, I, I was talking about this the other day with somebody who's like, folks with, with Down syndrome are some of the best people on the planet. They're without a doubt. I've, I've, they're just, every person I've ever met with Down syndrome is loving and caring and just wants to be your pal. And I, I know, I, I think that that's an incredible thing. And I think the world would be missing a, a great deal without folks like that. Um, so it's amazing. But yeah, I mean, there's other ways that it teaches humility too. Cause it's like, you know, the, the kid that I worked with that summer, he, I think he was 18. Like I would have to go to the bathroom with him and change his diaper or mm -hmm. change his, whatever word you want to use for that. And it's like, you know, sometimes you just got to get over yourself and do what has to be done to help somebody else. So. Yeah. I, I can see all that stuff that you just mentioned kind of carry over into your book when you, you talk a lot about, creating a stable environment through, you know, your own emotions and behavior. So people have, you know, something to expect, which creates some sort of safety in that environment. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And the thing is, and the one thing that comes, you know, that I, that I could have mentioned about the book, um, one of my motivations for writing it is a, as a reminder to myself is like, I had to write all of these things out to make sure that I remembered them and to make sure that they sink in. And it's like, because everybody's human and we all make mistakes and we all forget things. And it's like, if I have this very distinct process of how we can do the things that we need to do, it's easier to cut out all of your own shit and your emotions and, and the things that might get in the way of you doing the right thing. Awesome. All right. So we are down to the final question that we ask okay. everyone. Let's do it. It's usually our favorite answer. So no pressure. Hmm. Uh, what's one thing that you have changed your mind about in the past and excuse me, the last five years. What have I changed my mind about in the last five years? <clears throat> uh, I'll, I'll say how much this is going to be, I don't know if this is the answer you're looking for, but how much I've, I actually enjoy aerobic training. Oh, it was right. never, it was never something that I enjoyed before. And I just have just found whether it's the long hikes and rucks that I do, or whether it's the ridiculously hard threshold training that I do. Um, it's just been, I've seen such a benefit in it and like that the way that my body works, the, the levels of pain and discomfort that have just decreased the way that the clarity of my thinking has improved. And it was just one of those things where it was like, yeah, I'll, I'll do some cardiac output to make sure that I have some work capacity. But really, I think one of the most important things a person can do for themselves, regardless of what it is that they want to do, is develop their aerobic system. And I think you're uh, you're really coming into Tim and I's world right here. Okay. You've come a long way from an individual that didn't want to hike up Mount Nittany, my friend. I know. I didn't want to do it. <laughs> I didn't want to do it. It is like... I don't know. It's just, yeah, it was just, you, you just grow up, man. It's just maturity and you just, it's just maturity. And then you also have some examples of like, man, I just did. Uh, I think the first time that it really started to sink in for me, and this was more than five years ago, it was when I lived in Connecticut. Um, my boss at the time, Mike Ramphone and I were doing some, some Kale Dietz and Charlie Weingroff combined type programming. Uh, and it was some of their GPP work, which was, you know, 
all aerobic development. And I remember going through this phase and it was the first time I really just trusted it. Cause it's like, usually it had been, well, you lift stuff, you jump and then you run fast. And if you get to the other stuff, you get to it. And so going through this entire phase of GPP and then at the end being just as strong as I was before when mm-hmm. I started. And then also feel, I was like, okay, I get it. You know? So, you know, it's, it's a good realization. I think the interesting thing with the aerobic stuff too, just circa, you know, 2020, 2021 from like a mental health standpoint, like we live in the society where everything is vying for our attention, where like everything is trying to distract us every 15 seconds. And especially with like the low intensity steady state cardio, it's like, no, man, you just got to sit and do this thing for a very, very long period of time. And it's absolutely, it's it's a rapidly diminishing skill. Like it's something that I, I fear for like my nephew who's, you know, 12 or 13, like, is he going (laughs) to even have that mode when he's 25? I think that's important, man. And, and that's, uh, you know, and that's one of the things that's so appealing about, you know, some of the, the, the workouts that I have to overcome, you know, with the hunting fitness industry is that, you get, you get a big dopamine hit from doing the super hard stuff, man. And like the feeling afterwards and everything like that. So I try to, I try to reframe it for folks and say the challenge for this is to be bored and to Mm -hmm. be okay with being bored. That's your challenge. Like if you're doing high, high intensity, continuous step ups, it's not super physically taxing. It's just, you're doing the same damn thing for a long time. And so that's the challenge. Are you tough enough to be bored is the question. When I did uh, cross country in college, that was the most enjoyable and challenging experiences. But I always knew that I could probably just walk out a door and run 25 miles, no problem, anytime. Um, But I could also sit on a bike or run on a treadmill for over an hour and not even think twice about it. And now I find myself, you know, when I'm when I'm not, you know, have that mileage or that camaraderie for that experience or that aerobic development. Like, I'm just like, Hey, can I challenge myself not to scroll on Instagram when I'm like yeah. sitting on this bike for 20 minutes and so like 99% of the time the answer is no. And I'm just like, God, it's so embarrassing. It, it's, it's just exposure, right? It's yeah. just, it's, uh, you know, I think you know, the word mental toughness, which is doesn't really have a definition. I think it's kind of bullshit, but really what we have is like hardiness and some of the things that combine to, to make that, but that's just, that's based, a lot of it's just based on experience and, and showing and having been there before and doing that incrementally. So if you can go 10 minutes without looking on your phone while you're on Instagram, there's your victory. And then you just kind of bump it up from there. And then all of a sudden you have this new capacity to just be bored and it's, it's, it's super helpful. The small wins in life, you know? Yeah. So I, it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I think this would segue so well into something else I wanted to ask you about, which is the, the role of Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance in your life and why you reread that. But I think for in the interest of everybody's time, we might have to save that for round two. Okay. It's up to you. We, I, we can do it if you want to do it. It's up to you guys. Let's let's save it. This is a we'll good one. It. Let's get next books. Okay, <laughs> yep. that's fine. Yep. Yep. That's fine. But it just it made me think about like like this is this is exactly what an individual whose favorite book is about a man slowly going insane as he travels by <laughs> motorcycle across the continental United States. Like that, of course. Yep, that's all it all makes book. sense. So, uh, Todd, can you tell people where they can find out more about you? Sure. Yeah. So I I guess I got two Instagram handles at Todd Bumgardner and at Human Predator Pack Mule. Uh, I do my best to update, you know, training stuff there. Um, those are probably two of the best. Oh, and at Strength Faction, if you're a coach and 
you want that resource or, or to learn more about um, just all the things that go into creating your own career in the fitness industry and not having to follow some doctrine. And, um, you know, if you want to email me, it's Todd at beyondstrengthperformance.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. You got it. Thank you guys. Thanks for being this here, awesome. Todd. No, this was awesome. Thank you. We'll see you in the mountains. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Later, man. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool, and that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.